This conference, this conference will now be recorded. All right, good afternoon and welcome to our nearly annual session on civil traffic hearings. Uh, I think we took a year off the first year of the pandemic when we were trying to figure out what was going on. Uh, but we're very, very pleased to have with us once again, the Honorable Alicia Villa, who is the presiding hearing officer for the Phoenix Municipal Court. Uh, she is a longtime attorney, a former prosecutor, uh, and um, one of the most knowledgeable people that we have in Arizona uh, in, in terms of civil traffic. So it's always a, a great pleasure to have her present for us and to work with us. Uh, as always, you can turn your camera on. Uh, if you do, please make sure you're paying attention. Uh, please mute yourself unless you're actively asking a question. Uh, if you turn your camera on or turn your microphone on, then I'll assume you have a question. You can also put a question in the chat box. I will be monitoring that. As always, the materials are available in Hightail. Uh, we also sent out an email with two other places that I've now uploaded all of the materials in case you can't figure out Hightail. The last page of your packet is your CoJet certificate. Uh, and with that, I will turn it over to Judge Via. All right, thank you, Judge Adornetto. Um, Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, it is my pleasure to be here with you today. Uh, we were hoping to have this session in person, although we have not been able to do that for, for two years now. Um, but you know, the constant threat of COVID uh, still is lingering around. So um, we had to go ahead and make it virtual again. Um, there's a couple of, of uh, issues, obviously, with uh, conducting this kind of presentation virtually. Um, especially since I'm sharing the PowerPoint presentation, I cannot see any of you, so and I can't see the chat, and I can't see um, if anyone has any questions. So um, we will hopefully we've we've uh, scheduled this session for two hours, so hopefully we'll have plenty of time at the end of the session to answer your questions and answers, uh, or give you answers. Um, but also, um, I will be more than happy to provide you with my email contact information so that you can email questions to me afterwards. Um, and I believe we will also provide copies of the PowerPoint to you uh, if you've not already gotten copies uh, of them. So um, hopefully that will uh, be able to address any issues or questions that you have. Um, so I will be covering the civil traffic portion. Um, and then Judge Adornetto will cover the civil marijuana um, information. All right, so let's go ahead and get started. Um, how civil traffic hearings are conducted. Um, now, I know that many of you have already been on the bench for years or you've already been conducting civil traffic hearings, um, or perhaps you don't have that many civil traffic hearings in your courtrooms. Um, so for a lot of you, this information is going to be a refresher or just review. Um, so I'm going to go through the preliminary stuff pretty quickly. Um, so, of course, we always want to start with our rules of procedure. Um, and for civil traffic cases and also civil marijuana cases, we look to the newly named Arizona Rules of Court Procedure for Civil Traffic Voting Marijuana and Parking and Standing Violations. Um, so that is the set of rules that applies in our cases. Um, even if there is an attorney involved, even if the, the prosecutor's office is representing the state in these cases, um, that does not convert the type of case, and so it does not convert them from the rules. Um, so during the presentation, whenever I refer to a rule, um, I am referring to a rule from this set of rules. 
Um, the Arizona Rules of Criminal Procedure will apply in traffic cases only if there is an active criminal traffic charge. Um, so if you have someone who is cited with a DUI or reckless driving or even a criminal driving on suspended license, um, the Rules of Criminal Procedure apply for the entire case as long as that charge is active. Um, however, once that charge is concluded, if it's dismissed or if it's scratched, then the remaining charges, if they are civil traffic only, then, the, uh, then you will then look to the Arizona Rules of Civil Traffic Cases. Um, for there are some issues where you will need to look to other sets of rules. Um, for example, if you have an issue concerning service of the complaint, um, that would actually, those rules would actually be contained in the Arizona Rules of Civil Procedure. Um, now this applies mostly when we have the photo enforcement cases. Um, so I don't believe any of the justice courts are, are handling any of those cases anymore. Um, but routinely when we did have the photo cameras, um, then service was an issue and we had to look at the rules of civil procedure with regard to service. Um, the time limits for filing a complaint actually are not included in the rules of civil procedure. Uh, for that, you would have to look to ARS Title 28 uh, with regard to how long the state has to, uh, to serve or to issue a complaint. Um, <clears throat> in civil traffic cases, the state is not required to be represented by counsel. Um, if the prosecutor is going to be representing the state, then they must give the defendant notice at least 10 calendar days before the hearing um, or within 10 calendar days of notice that the defendant will be represented. Um, now, in these cases, because most of the time the prosecutor's office does not appear in civil traffic matters, um, the case will be presented by the police officer. Um, however, the officer is still a witness. Um, they are not the prosecutor or a party to the case. Um, so therefore, the officer may only um, testify and present the state's evidence. Um, however, they cannot question witnesses or make, make legal arguments or objections. Um, the defendant must notify the court by the, uh, and the state within 10 days before a hearing if they will be represented by counsel. Um, failure to comply with the rule means that the defendant's right to be represented is waived. Um, however, what if defense, defense counsel files a notice of appearance on the day of hearing or less than 10 days from the civil traffic hearing? Um, that is going to be up to your discretion for your court whether you want to get, uh, grant a continuance in the case to allow the attorney to appear, um, or if the attorney says they are ready to proceed for the, for the hearing date as scheduled, um, you can allow them to appear if you know that the state will not be appearing. Um, so for example, in my court, um, our prosecutor's office does not appear in any civil traffic cases, regardless of whether the defendant has counsel or not. So I can, I can accept a notice of appearance by a defense counsel, even on the day of hearing, if notice was not given prior, because it doesn't matter whether they're, they're going to be representing a defendant or not, our prosecutor's office still has waived their presence and will always waive their presence. So I can allow defend, defense attorneys to, um, to come in um, and file their NOA um, on the date of hearing or, or less than 10 days uh, from the hearing date. Um, so that's just going to depend on the, the on the procedure for your particular court. Yeah, and the same is true in our justice courts. The county attorney will never appear, uh, so it really makes little difference. Now, you, you can go ahead and 
and uh, remind the attorney that they're required to do it you know, 10 days in advance. And um, But uh, there, there's no uh, harm done by the late filing. Correct. Correct. All right. For failure to appear, um, if the officer or no witness for the state appears, um, then the court shall dismiss the complaint um, unless there is good cause to continue. So if uh, a motion to continue has been filed that the officer is on vacation or um, if there's any other reason that, that you have an explanation as to why the officer is not there and you find that it is good cause, um, then you can continue the case. Um, otherwise, if it's not good cause or you don't have a motion to continue and the officer simply does not appear, then the court is to dismiss the complaint. Um, if the state's witness appears and the defendant fails to appear, then the court enters a default judgment. Um, there is one exception in the rule with regard to this, and that is if the defendant is in active military service. Um, because of the federal law for um, service uh, men and women, um, you cannot enter a default against uh, a military member who is in active military service. So if the court is aware of the fact that the defendant is on active duty, um, then you cannot issue a default. Um, you would have to just continue the case. Uh, what we do is we continue it for a 90 day period and we continue to just keep checking to see if the, the uh, defendant is still in, act, in military duty or not. Um, but uh, if you have no other rationale as to why the defendant is not there, uh, they just simply fail to appear, you enter a default judgment. Um, if no one appears from either side, defendant's not there, officer is not there, um, again, we would defer to Rule 21. Um, the state is the one who has the burden of proof in these cases. So if there is no witness for the state, then you still dismiss the complaint. Um, again, unless there's good cause to continue, um, but otherwise you still would, would uh, with the state having the burden of proof, if the state is not there, the case gets dismissed regardless of whether the defendant is there or not. All right, um, pre-hearing discovery. One of the best advantages with civil traffic hearings is that there is no pre-hearing discovery um, permitted uh, unless, there are abs uh, unless there are extraordinary circumstances. Um, so what I consider to be extraordinary circumstances would be cases, uh, for example, cases with um, a complex collision, you know, many vehicles involved, perhaps a serious injury or a fatality which was involved. Um, that may be something where the um, reports are extensive and there would be more of a requirement for someone to see them ahead of time and, and be able to prepare for their hearing. Um, but otherwise, what the rules require is that there be an immediate exchange uh, prior to the hearing of the exhibits uh, by both parties. So when parties are there for the hearing, they come up to the, the tables or to the um, the bench, um, you ask if there are any exhibits from either side, and then you have them exchange uh, discovery at that point before you just before you get started for the hearing. Um, if the defendant requests to see the officer's notes during the hearing, the officer must show them. Um, that is required by the rule. And um, I have had officers who do not want to share their notes with the defendant, um, usually because they've written some disparaging remarks about the defendant or, you know, they just want they have something on their notes that they don't want the defendant to see. 
uh, but based on the rules, they are required to show the defendant any notes that they have regarding the case. Right. The order of proceedings is the standard order of proceedings that you would find for any hearing. Um, so you have the direct, redirect, uh, or re direct, cross, and redirect of the state's witnesses, direct, cross, and redirect of defense witnesses. Um, the state would then be offered rebuttal. Um, the court has uh, the option of uh, providing sir rebuttal uh, if, if you want to do that. Um, and then the court also has the option of allowing closing argument by the parties if permitted. Um, now, again, argument is only limited to parties, so the officers do not get an opportunity to make closing arguments. Um, I do allow defendants to add anything else that they would like to add as a, essentially as a closing statement. Um, most individuals um, who are representing themselves do not really know how to craft a, a closing argument. Um, so I don't necessarily ask them if there's anything, if, if they have a closing argument. Um, what I just ask them is if, if there's anything else that they would like to say before I close the hearing. Um, and then after you've allowed them that opportunity, you then make the ruling by the court. Um, all right, so um, one of the things that Judge Arnonetto asked for me to include in this presentation uh, this year is with regard to virtual hearings. Um, I'm sure all of you have uh, become aware of the administrative order that was uh, issued or the, the um, issuance um, of the Plan B committee recommendations um, from the Supreme Court. Um, and what they have recommended is, is that there be uh, some proceedings um, that are uh, presumptively to be held virtually and other proceedings that are presumptively to be held in person. Um, with regard to civil traffic, um, the recommendations from the Supreme Court's committee is that proceedings uh, be held virtually um, except for actual um, hearings, contested hearings. Um, so the recommendation for contested hearings is that uh, they remain in person um, however, this particular administrative order allows courts to make the determination of what works best for their particular court. Um, so in the city of Phoenix, for Phoenix Municipal Court, um, since the pandemic began, uh, we made the decision to offer virtual hearings uh, by video in civil traffic cases. Um, we actually began, we started with the planning process during 2020. We implemented it during 2021, um, and we have been holding virtual hearings in a limited basis uh, since then. Um, the rules actually allow, um, we do have specific rules with regard to audio-visual hearings. That's the way they're referred to in the rules. Um, and the rules state that you may permit parties, attorneys, and or witnesses to appear by audio-visual interactive means. Um, the request for a virtual hearing or video audiovisual appearance uh, must be made at least 14 calendar days prior to the hearing date. Um, and the courts may require the requesting party to pay the cost for the hearing um, and also may request the defendant to post a bond for, a po for the possible fine. Um, now, obviously, the way it's presented in the rules is if this request is being made um, by the parties. Um, the way that it worked out with the pandemic was that this was not a request from the parties. It was actually an option that was provided by the courts, um, or even in some cases, it was a requirement um, from courts that people participate by video. 
Um, so the rules don't necessarily specifically address, you know, that where the court is requiring um, an appearance by video, um, but the same type of regulations with regard to what is required for the hearings, um, that would still apply as far as the rules are concerned. So, um, you know, we, we have the option of allowing people to appear by video or not. Um, you, can, you can tell them no if you want them to come in in person, um, but if not, if you want to proceed, um, there are certain things, that, certain requirements that you have to follow. Um, so for the audiovisual appearances, that is contained in Rule 10.1 of the Civil Traffic Rules. One of the requirements is that everyone must be able to see and hear all of the parties at the same time. Um, also, the audio portion must be captured accurately on the court's official record, um, and you must have either a fax um, or email available for uh, parties to transmit exhibits um, and for the court to transmit the notice of right to appeal. Um, so one of the ways that we have put this in, or that we've implemented this, like I said, in the Phoenix Municipal Court, um, is we have uh, provided video hearings for individuals um, in one of our civil traffic courtrooms. The other civil traffic courtroom still handles hearings in person. Um, as you can see here, this is a copy of my courtroom, which has been um, outfitted as a video courtroom. Um, we have video cameras in the courtroom uh, that not only show me um, on the bench, um, but also can show if we do have individuals who are here in court. Um, so let's say, for example, we have a case that is scheduled for a video hearing, um, but the defendant either doesn't get the notice that it's by video or they can't seem to figure out how to connect on the video and they just decide to come into court. Um, obviously, we're still going to go ahead and conduct the hearing. So if the officer is present by video and the person is here in court, um, we have a camera that would be able to pick up the, the individual uh, that's in court and we would still hold the hearing by video. Um, same thing applies if we have an officer who uh, an officer who isn't issued a, a laptop and doesn't have the ability to appear by video, they still have the option of coming into court and appearing in the courtroom um, while the defendant appears by video. And in the justice courts, uh, it's uh, different in all the courts. So of course, we all went telephonic or virtual when we had to. Uh, and now that it's optional, um, some courts may be going back in person. Some courts are going to leave them virtual. Uh, some courts are still using Scopia, which is just telephonic. Other courts are using Court Connect, which is basically Teams. Um, and those courts that are doing that will usually have iPads that are anchored to uh, the party tables um, so that if somebody does show up, they can still have access to see the other person. Uh, and the other person can see them with the iPad. Uh, so that is how we are handling that. Okay, okay, good. Um, yeah, what we have found, you know, like I said, we've been doing the video hearings um, since 2021. And um, because we started this essentially as a, a pilot program, um, we send a survey um, to our participants post hearing, um, asking them about, you know, the video hearing experience. Um, what we have found is that most defendants um, really like being able to appear by video. Uh, they've said that it's more convenient. They don't have to take time off of work. 
Um, for our out-of-state individuals, it gives them an opportunity to be heard um, and to actually participate in a video, uh, it, uh, you know, in their hearing without having to travel back to Arizona. Um, for um, other, you know, other individuals who who said, you know, they didn't have to take care of childcare um, or protect, perhaps they have transportation issues and trying to come to court. Um, so they have really found it to be a convenience. Um, it was a little bit more difficult to get the officers used to it, uh, but now that they have become accustomed to it, even the officers have said it's much more convenient for them because they don't have to travel here to court, take time off, leave their area, and then travel back. Um, they're able to get back into the field right away. Um, so it's, it seems like it's, it's now that people are becoming more accustomed to it, um, it seems like it really is a convenience for everyone. Um, so for Phoenix Municipal Court, um, again, we are still doing this in a limited basis. So we are doing these on civil traffic cases only um, and cases not involving accidents. Um, so what we have found is that you do have more technical issues the more people you have um, in the meeting. And um, the city requires us to use the WebEx platform. Um, so we did not have an option in being able to pick other platforms. Um, and that is one of the things that we have found is that we encounter a lot less technical issues when we limit it to just having three people on the call, the court and the two part, uh, the officer and the, the defendant. Um, Evites or uh, email invitations are sent to defendants and the police officers when the hearing date is scheduled. Um, if the defendant does not want to have a, hear a video hearing, they can obviously opt out. We are not forcing anyone to have a video hearing if they're not comfortable with it. Um, but again, we have very, very, very few people who have uh, elected to opt out of the video hearing. Um, most people have become accustomed to doing it. Um, defendants and officers are advised to submit their exhibits by email prior to the hearing. Um, and that's just for our staff to be able to process them, make sure that whatever has been submitted can be viewed. Um, if it's a photo to make sure that, you know, we can open it and see it. If it's a video to make sure that it works and that it plays. Um, and then they upload those to my bench computer so that that way I can access it. Um, and I actually, the judge is actually the one who runs the meeting, um, although the bailiff is still maintaining the record and, and recording the proceeding. Um, and then our post-court documents and instructions on how to pay their fine online um, are sent after the uh, proceeding is ended. And again, those are sent by email to the defendants um, and we send the surveys to both participants. Um, now we also do have telephonic appearances. And again, telephonic appearances are not new to the civil traffic hearings. We've been doing those for years because they're included in our rules. Um, so rule 10.1D uh, does allow a defendant to request a telephonic appearance. Um, at the, in the rule, it does indicate that any defenses um, of, for lack of identification are waived if they choose to appear by phone. Um, and the court must still ensure that a quality record is maintained. Um, one of the other alternatives that we have in the um, civil traffic rules oh, is the, yes. Judge Fia, if you wanna back up to the previous slide. Uh, sure. So why I wanted this discussed is um, 10, as you indicated 10.1D, the defendant may request a telephonic appearance in which case they are waiving an in-court identification 
Uh, what if the court schedules a telephonic appearance uh, so that the defendant didn't request it and the defendant says he can't identify me? Well, the issue with that is, again, we have an administrative order that allows us um, to hold proceedings um, through remote um, appearances. Um, and so, you know, if the defendant is then indicating that that there's an identification issue, um, what the court can do is the court can schedule a an identity issue, uh, an identity hearing, or they can do an in-person hearing um, if that is something that the defendant is raising. Um, but you know, again, when the when the rules were made, the rules were made prior to um, essentially these recommendations that it would be the court that would initiate um, the telephonic appearances or the remote appearances. So um, you know, there may be um, this may be revisited by uh, by the court to do a rewrite of the rules. Um, right now, you know, this is all just things that have come out from from an emergency order and then now deciding to make this into a regular um, procedure. So um, the rules have not been uh, amended to that. Um, but that would be my suggestion would be if a person is now is claiming that there's an identity issue or identification issue, um, then you would then, um, you know, have, have to have an in-person hearing. So I would address it at the beginning before you actually start the hearing itself and just ask if there is, um, you know, if they agree to um, to identity, do they agree that they are the person who was uh, cited for this violation? If they say no, they're not willing to stipulate to that or agree to that, then I would not proceed with the with a hearing by phone. Um, now, obviously, if you're doing an arraignment or something else like that, then you know that's fine. You could still go ahead and proceed. Does that address the question? Yes. Okay, perfect. I can't see, so I didn't know. <laughs> All right. Um, so another option that we do have available, and again, we've had available in civil traffic is the documentary hearings, um, which are covered in rule 10.2. Um, now, again, for these, the defendant must request a documentary hearing in writing and must show that they have su substantial hardship to appearing um, by uh, to appearing in person uh, for a hearing. Um, the defendant is uh, then must uh, file a written statement, which would be taken as their testimony, essentially. Um, so the statement should be written under the penalty of perjury. Um, once a defendant is, um, is approved for a documentary hearing, um, then the state may also appear through documents as well. And so then the state's witness can submit a written statement um, and exhibits as, as well once they know that there is, uh, has been a documentary hearing approved. Um, both sides may also submit exhibits um, and then the court uh, will make the decision based on what's been submitted by both sides. Um, one thing that is important in Rule 10.2, it does state on here that the defendant um, must waive the following rights. Um, and so, for example, we have a form um, that we send to defendants when they're saying that they want to have a documentary hearing. Um, we have a form um, that they sign saying, yes, I want to have a documentary hearing. I understand that I am waiving the following rights um, and I still want to proceed um, by not appearing in person. Um, and so essentially these are it, it just enumerates the rights um, that they are waiving. Um, and uh, also, because they are appearing by document, um, the appeal time is extended to 21 days.
Um, if you are interested in offering the documentary hearings, um, we, the, the approved forms or some um, sample forms that you can use for your court are included in Rule 37. All right. Um, for civil traffic hearings, all testimony of witnesses must be given under oath. Um, if defendants um, cite a religious objection to uh, to taking or to giving an oath, um, they can be asked to affirm. Um, it is up to you as the judicial officer to decide whether you want to swear in all of your witnesses as a group at the beginning of the hearing, or if you want to um, swear in each witness individually prior to their testimony completely up to your discretion. Now, if you realize during the hearing that you forgot to administer the oath, um, if you are still in the process of conducting the hearing, um, you can essentially uh, do a, a corrective order. Um, you can uh, administer the oath to the witness at that time. You can, um, if there's witnesses who've already completed their testimony, you can go ahead and, and uh, give them the oath as well, um, just so that that way it is on the record. Uh, now, if you've already completed the hearing, um, if the parties are still there, again, you can still go ahead and correct it for the record. Um, however, if the parties had or have already left and you realize at that point that you never put the, the party, uh, the, the people under, under the advisement of the oath, um, you're basically at risk. If somebody uh, uh, appeals that case, um, you're going to be reversed and there's really nothing else you can do about it once the parties have already left. Um, so this is always a good practical pointer that I give everyone is make really good friends with your bailiff or your recording clerk um, so that that way they know to send you a note or somehow advise you if you have not placed a witness under oath. Um, because once you're once the testimony is given and the hearing is done, you can't go back and correct it after that. All right, um, hearing officers are allowed to call and examine witnesses. Um, so we can ask questions of the witnesses. Um, when you are asking questions, just make sure that you remain neutral and avoid the appearance of representing either side. Um, questioning is best restricted to asking for clarification of facts or issues. You don't wanna sound like you are cross-examining anyone um, or like you are advocating for one side or the other. Um, use of interpreters. Uh, so obviously, since these are hearings, um, people do have a due process right to have an interpreter provided if requested. Um, it is a reversible error if an interpreter is not provided. Um, the judge is not allowed to conduct proceedings in any language other than English, um, so the official record must be in English. Um, if you do have interpreters who are not part of your court staff, um, for example, in Phoenix, we have several Spanish court interpreters who are full-time interpreters for our court. Um, all of them are very well versed. They've, they've been here, you know, for years um, and they know what they are to do, what their official function is. Um, but sometimes when you have the lesser used languages or an exotic language, you may have an interpreter who's new um, or who is not well versed in, in court interpretation. Um, so I would recommend placing the interpreter under oath um, at the beginning of the hearing, um, just because it just reminds them that their, their duty is to give a true and accurate interpretation of the words, not to try and represent the individual or to try and explain for them what they are saying. They are only to interpret what is said. 
Um, there are some unique interpreter situations that you may encounter. Uh, for example, if you have a hearing impaired individual, um, they may be versed in sign language. In that case, you can get a sign language interpreter. Um, there are sign languages in various languages. Um, so you have American Sign Language, you have Spanish Sign Language, French Sign Language. So it does make a difference on to what type of, of sign language the individual requires. Um, for individuals who do not know sign language, um, they can also be provided lip readers, which are certified lip readers. Um, or you can also use relay um, operators uh, which are essentially the ones who do who type in all of the information um, on a computer screen and then the defendant types the information back. Um, so all of those are approved by the Americans with Disabilities Act for um, interpretation for hearing impaired excuse me, individuals. Um, you also have um, sometimes uncommon or exotic languages. Um, if you are unable to determine the defendant's language, um, I would suggest uh, that you look at the, um, there's a resource, I believe in the AOC website, I believe on Wendell, um, that says, I speak, and it has various countries listed and the various languages uh, from those countries. Um, so I have a copy of that document in my bench book um, so that if I have someone that we just cannot determine what language they speak, um, we at least try to find out where they're from or if nothing else, I show them that list and ask them to point to what, what is their language. Um, occasionally, we do have a situation where um, our interpreter's office is unable to locate an interpreter for the defendant's um, language. Um, we had uh, some individuals who spoke a particular dialect of Creole. Um, I believe they were from Haiti. Um, and we could not find a Creole interpreter anywhere. Um, fortunately, the, uh, the defendant um, advised us that they also spoke French, and so we were able to get a French interpreter and, and make do with that. Um, but if, you know, your interpreter coordinator or your interpreter's office has indicated that they have tried every mean available and they simply cannot um, locate an interpreter for that defendant's language, because these are civil traffic violations and it's not involving life or liberty or anything like that, um, we can dismiss the charges if we can't provide them with a, an interpreter. But you have to make sure that you've exhausted all means in trying to find an interpreter for them. Um, the use of the language line is approved um, by the state of Arizona. So that is, all, that is actually a very, very good resource. Um, I've never had a situation where language line has not been able to locate uh, an interpreter um, that, you know, for a particular language that we have requested. Um, when you are using interpreters, particularly you, the, the um, exotic languages or uncommon languages, um, be sensitive to cultural issues. Uh, I had an individual one time many, many years ago, um, he was an Arabic speaker and the interpreter that we had was a female. And because of cultural issues, he did not want to have what he deemed to be a female speaking for him. And so he refused to talk to her. He refused to look at her. He refused to sit next to her. So we had to reschedule the case. And I specifically ordered that they, um, you know, obtain a male Arabic interpreter um, so that we could actually hold the hearing for that individual. 
Um, and then as a judicial officer, you can actually question the competency or the accuracy of the interpretation. Um, so you, if you have a situation where the person is talking and talking and talking and talking and the interpreter is simply saying yes or, you know, or the, the opposite, you are talking and talking or the officer is talking and talking and the interpreter is not translating, um, you know, I would address it with the interpreter, again, remind them that they are to translate everything that is being said. And if you simply feel that this interpreter is not doing an adequate job, um, you can actually declare a mistrial um, and reschedule the case and order a new interpreter. And, and you also have to look out for the interpreter having side conversations uh, with, the, with the defendant. Uh, you know, they, they are just, they're just simply supposed to be mirroring back what you have said and what the defendant has said. They're not to engage in any side conversations or additional explanations. Uh, and where we have the most issues with interpreters are, are from some of those exotic languages. And uh, I, we, we did have the language line unable to find a Chuckese uh, uh, interpreter. That that is the one. That's the one. And that wasn't from our court. I believe that was also um, in Tempe. They had a small uh, population of of people from the island of Chuck, and they could not find an interpreter for the for the Chuckies. Um, but it didn't occur in my court. So I can say I personally have not had the experience where language line couldn't find someone. Um, but yes, Judge, you're you're absolutely correct. Um, you know, if you find that the interpreter is having side conversations or you know if there's anything at all that makes you just feel like something is not right um, question it and if you truly feel that this is not something that can be corrected um, then you know just stop the hearing say I, I have you know I believe that there is a, a issue with the interpretation um, and then you know reset it um, I've also been told by you know maybe a family member or someone who's here with the defendant, um, who actually will say in the middle of the proceeding, you know, the interpreter is not interpreting correctly, or, you know, this is not the right language, or they don't understand what's going on. Um, and so then it's, I stop the proceeding and I try to communicate with the defendant to find out whether they understand what's going on or not. Um, sometimes it may be a dialect issue. Um, sometimes it could just, it could be, you know, that we've gotten the wrong language. Um, so there's always some sort of situation that can happen. Uh, but just remember that your obligation is to make sure that that individual understands what is going on in court. Um, another issue just important to keep in mind is that um, in our cases, we often deal with difficult people. Um, because individuals in our cases are not represented the majority of the time, um, our job is dealing directly with the public. There's no attorney to act as a filter. There's no attorney to kind of tell the person what they can or cannot say. Um, so just remember that it is important to remain calm. Um, if the defendant sees that you are becoming upset or angry, it will only aggravate the situation. Um, if all else fails, take a recess. Just kind of give everyone a, a chance to calm down, just to take a breather. Um, and then return and, and try to continue the proceeding. Um, make sure that you try to keep the proceedings as controlled and civil as possible. And above all else, make sure to keep a clear record um, because you know, it, in any 
in any uh, case, there's always a, a possibility that someone can file a complaint, um, that somehow word of the proceeding gets out. And if you have not maintained a good record so that you can, so that people know what you said and what you did and what, how you tried to control the situation, um, you know, you've got no, nothing to support your position. So try to make sure that you keep a clear record. Um, my bailiffs are under instructions that, you know, if anything happens in our court, they are not to turn off the record unless I specifically tell them to. Um, we've had situations where people have, you know, started to um, yell or curse or, you know, we've had to call security and they keep that record going just in case. All right. Uh, burden of proof in our cases is a preponderance of the evidence, which uh, people always like to ask, well, what does that mean? Um, and I always show them the, you know, the scales, the balance of the scales more likely than not. One side is slightly more evidence than the other, then that is the side that wins. Um, the elements that the state must establish, again, for every violation, the, the date and time, location of the incident, that it occurred within the court's jurisdiction, um, identification of the defendant, um, and then, of course, the specific elements for that particular violation. Um, if the state fails to prove the elements of the offense by a preponderance of the evidence, you must find the defendant not responsible. Um, so if the state misses an element, this is a common question that I get, do you prompt the state's witness? I normally will not try to directly ask them about an element that they have forgotten. So let's say, for example, the officer forgot to say um, that the location was in the jurisdiction of the court. I don't specifically ask them that question. Um, at the end of the testimony, I just ask a general question, officer, is there anything else that you would like to add? That is my kind of clue to them that there may be something that they have missed, but I'm not going to tell them exactly what it is. I'm not going to give them that, that uh, assistance. Now, for the defendant, um, if the defendant fails to address a charge, I do prompt them because there's a difference in the fact defendants who are here, that many times this is their first um, you know, entrance into court. It's the first time they've ever been in court. They know nothing about the procedures. They know nothing about you know, what's going to happen or, what, or how the, the proceeding goes. Whereas officers have gone through training. They've, gone, you know, they've come in, they've observed as part of their training with their field training. Um, and so the officers have a little bit more knowledge where the defendants don't. So I give the defendants a little bit more leeway. Um, if you have a person who is cited with multiple violations, let's say they have a speeding, no current registration, um, and no insurance, and they talk about the speeding and they never bring up the registration or insurance, I will ask them, you know, Mr. So-and-so, was there anything you wanted to say about the registration or insurance? And then normally they say, oh, yes, Judge, I forgot here, you know, I brought my documents with me or whatever the case may be. So. I do prompt um, defendants if they have forgotten something. Um, all right, a couple of things with regard to evidence. So in our cases, obviously, um, we uh, the rules of evidence do not apply except for relevance and uh, privilege. Um, relevance is whether testimony or evidence has some probative value to the material issue at hand. Um, the judge is the one who determines the relevancy and we don't have, again, because we are the finders of facts in these cases, 
we don't have to have an objection. If somebody is going on and on talking about something that's not relevant, you can put a stop to it. Tell them, let, tell them that that information is not relevant to this case and then put them back on track to talking about this particular incident. So a couple of hypotheticals here, you know, if we have someone who's giving testimony about someone else who received a warning for the same type of violation instead of a citation, that's not really relevant to their particular case. Um, different officers can have different discretion, different, you know, situations can have different discretion. So the fact that somebody else got a warning and this person got a citation, not going to be relevant. Uh, photographs depicting how signs are posted in a different state or a foreign country, not going to be relevant because what is relevant is what is required in the state of Arizona. Um, I often have people who will bring this up about the fact that, you know, their MVD record, that they've never received a citation before. You know, they've been driving for 20 years and they have a perfectly clean driving record. Well, that may be all well and good, but that doesn't mean that someone can't make a mistake, um, you know, once in the 20 years that they've been driving. Um, so their MVD record or the, the cleanliness of their driving record really is not relevant to the case. Um, testimony from an officer that the incident occurred in a high crime area. That may be relevant um, if it's explaining why the officer was there um, or if it's ex explaining why the officer conducted a, a traffic stop. Um, but if it's just because the officer is just trying to tell you this area is known for people to, uh, you know, to congregate to uh, commit traffic violations, um, again, not going to be relevant to whether or not this particular defendant committed a violation. Um, and the recording of the defendant and the officer's conversation. Um, we get this a lot now that the officers, particularly in Phoenix, that the officers are wearing the body cams. Um, we get a lot of individuals who request the body cam footage. Um, and the body cam footage normally doesn't have anything to do with the violation. The officers don't turn the cameras on until they are in contact with the person. Um, so the violation is not recorded on the body cam. Um, so, you know, the, the defendant usually wants to just bring that up to show that the officer was mean or that they were, uh, you know, rude or something like that. Um, that's not necessarily relevant. You don't necessarily have to have that particular footage or the recording. Um, the defendant can obviously testify about those issues, um, but whether or not it's going to prove or disprove the case, it may have some issues with regard to credibility. Um, so it might be relevant, may not be relevant, more than likely will probably not be relevant. Um, all right, admissibility. Um, per, per Rule 17, uh, rules of evidence do not apply except for privilege and relevance. Uh, privilege communications, again, haven't really had that occur too often in my cases, um, except for, you know, we do have the issue where many times someone's spouse may be in the vehicle when they were stopped by an officer. Um, obviously, whoever holds the, the privilege, um, they are the ones who get to determine whether they want to testify or not. So. It's fine if a wife does want to testify on behalf of her husband or if the husband wants to testify on behalf of his wife. Um, however, we cannot compel uh, someone to testify against their spouse or doctor patient or whatever uh, because their communication is privileged. All right, quickly. Um, yes. I'm going to I'm going to pop in here. Uh, okay. With with a reminder about the rules of evidence not applying because I guarantee if you have an attorney who is appearing, 
you will get objections based on the rules of evidence uh, with respect to hearsay or possibly others. Uh, and um, either the attorney themselves is not familiar with the rules of procedure for civil traffic hearings, or the attorney is putting on a show for the client, um, or the attorney may be testing you thinking that they, they can convince you that the rules of evidence do apply. Uh, if you need to cut and paste these slides out and, and take them around with you, keep in mind the rule of evidence do not apply in the civil traffic hearings except for those, except for privilege communications and relevance. Correct, correct. And I would say by far the objection that we get the most is with regard to hearsay. Um, and I agree completely with Judge Arnonetto. You, you know, you will see that um, from defendant, uh, from defense attorneys, who either are not familiar with the procedures um, and the rules of procedure for civil traffic, or because they're just so used to how we normally operate in court um, that it's just kind of, you know, indoctrinated into a trial attorney that that's what you do is you object as soon as you hear, well, someone said this. Um, but yes, in our hearings, hearsay comes in. Uh, obviously, you can consider the um, the weight of the statement uh, versus the admissibility of it. It is admissible, and you can assign whatever weight you feel um, it it is uh, it is worthy of. Um, but no, hearsay is not uh, to be precluded in our hearings. Um, I'm actually very surprised too with the, um, the amount of lay people who know about hearsay. Uh, there's a lot of people who watch court TV shows and watch you know, Law and Order and things like that. And that is the one objection they seem to know is hearsay. If you can back, back up to the previous slide. Sure. Uh, more about hearsay. So let, let's talk exactly about what, what this means is a police officer can show up and read the report of a different police officer. Um, that is hearsay and that is admissible. So I, I had a hearing uh, where there were two detectives who appeared uh, for a defendant who was accused of running a stop sign. And they were not, they, th this person was a person of interest apparently because he was a drug dealer and they couldn't get him on anything else. And so they got him for running a stop sign. But the officer who actually witnessed the violation was not there. Uh, so two detectives read, um, read police reports in who didn't witness it themselves. Now that is admissible because hearsay is admissible. The defendant then testified that he made a full and complete stop at the stop sign. So as the hearing officer, uh, you have to balance, you have to weigh the evidence. And I had a live witness say that he did not commit a violation and only hearsay that he did. Uh, and so that defendant did prevail. Yes. And, and I see that happen very often in collision cases. You know, the officers will try to appear and say, well, I spoke to, you know, the other person involved, driver number two, who told me, you know, X, Y, Z, but that driver is not there. And so then you have the defendant who says, no, that's not what happened. You know, they are the ones that hit me or whatever the case may be. And so then you've got to determine, um, you know, whose, whose statement is more credible, the live testimony that you are receiving under oath or the testimony or the statement that was given to the officer um, at the time. 
Um, so, you know, uh, in those cases, uh, many times, if the witness is not here, then the defendant will prevail. Um, however, we do have, you know, times, other times where, you know, the defendant says something that just clearly is not believable, not credible, um, doesn't, you know, isn't um, corroborated by the physical damage or, or by any of the other evidence that's been presented. And so even then, you know, a statement could um, outweigh uh, live testimony if the live testimony simply is not credible. So it can happen both ways. But yes, I agree with you, Judge. It, it does happen quite often that you will have someone testifying about something that someone else said. All right. So um, foundation, you know, sometimes we do get questions about whether or not um, someone has uh, the proper foundation for their testimony. Um, so when you have an investigating officer who gives an opinion on how a collision occurred, but they obviously did not witness the collision, um, you know, the foundation for their basis of their opinion is the training and experience that they have in accident investigation. Um, a photograph of a vehicle on a road or a roadway um, that's taken sometime after the incident, as long as that photograph still fairly and accurately depicts the vehicle or the roadway or whatever the, the photograph is of, um, then you can still uh, admit that that photograph without any additional foundation. Um, radar units will often get asked about radar units and whether they were calibrated or not. Um, the officers can provide testimony with regard to their device and how often it was checked and you know when it was last calibrated. They don't have to bring in the records. You know, uh, we'll get defendants sometimes who will ask about the maintenance records for the radar unit. Um, and sometimes the officers will bring them in if they've been asked for them ahead of time. Um, but otherwise, that's not something that they're required to bring in for a civil traffic hearing. Their testimony is foundation enough that the radar unit was working accurately at the time. Um, in this day and age now, we see a lot of electronic evidence, um, which is, uh, you know, presented for these hearings. Um, these may be pictures or videos from cell phones or tablets. Um, sometimes we get um, accident cases where a security camera has picked up footage of the collision. Um, like I mentioned before, we have the officer's body cameras or dash cam footage. Um, so the, the most important thing with regard to this evidence is, again, as long as it's relevant, it, it, it can be admitted. It will be admitted. Um, however, any exhibits that are offered um, have to be kept as part of the record. So you have to make sure that everything offered as an exhibit is in a format that can be transferred to the appellate court. So if somebody comes and they simply have a photograph on their cell phone, there's no way for you to obtain that photograph from their phone unless they can email it to you or somehow they can download it. If it's simply the fact that you're looking at the phone um, in court, there is nothing that can be saved for appeals purposes. Um, so that's why I always ask people ahead of time before we begin the hearing if they have any evidence and what their evidence is. And if they just hold up their phone and tell me I've got pictures on my phone, then I let them know that, you know, we're not going to be able to accept anything on their cell phone as evidence. Um, we need to have it in a, in a format that can be saved with the court file. Um, so either they need to email it to the court or I can grant them a continuance if it's something that they need to download, like if it's a video or something like that, um, we can grant them a continuance or they can proceed without it. 
that is the other option. Okay, but just very, very important that you do not accept any evidence or look at any evidence unless you can preserve it for the record. All right, at the conclusion of your hearing, um, you'll want to make sure that you've advised the parties that um, the hearing is concluded and that no further testimony or evidence will be heard. Um, there's one of my pet peeves is when I'm in the middle of giving my um, my ruling and someone says, oh, judge, can I add one more thing? Um, so I make it a point to go you know, to each person, say, is there anything else you want to add? Is there anything else you want to add? And I then advise them, okay, the hearing is now concluded. We, I will not hear any further testimony or evidence. This is the court's time to now announce my decision um, because I, I just don't like it when people want to add something else that usually is not relevant or, or you know, it's not going to really make a difference anyway. Um, before you um, announce your ruling, you want to check with the bailiff to ensure that all exhibits have been marked and admitted, make sure that all of that has been taken care of. Um, and then you want to make sure that you give your ruling. Um, so in your ruling, it's always helpful to the appellate court that you state your findings of fact. Um, so the facts that the court believes have been proven based on the evidence and your conclusions of law. So for example, in a uh, speed, not reasonable and prudent charge, um, I will say, you know, based on the evidence that has been provided, um, the court finds that the defendant was traveling at a speed of 58 miles per hour in a 35 mile per hour zone. The speed was captured by the officer on a radar unit. The radar unit was working properly and accurately at the time based on the evidence presented by the officer. And the defendant did not provide anything that contradicted the speed that the officer uh, listed. Um, so I therefore find the violation was committed and I find the defendant responsible for the violation. That's kind of the standard thing that I would say for that particular charge. Um, if you find the person responsible, you want to make sure that you enter the judgment and impose the appropriate fine. Um, for the appropriate fine, you're going to want to look to your bond schedule for your court. Um, and then, of course, you know, depending on the circumstances, you can increase or aggravate um, if the circumstances require an aggravated fine um, or you can mitigate if that's um, if that is proper in that case as well. Um, unless there's a mandatory re fine required by statute you have the range available to you. Um, remember that the mandatory fine for a civil traffic violation is $250. That's the base fine. That does not include the surcharges and the other applicable fees, um, unless there is a specific mandatory fine that's above that amount. Um, you're also required to provide the defendant notice of right to appeal, um, and the court must report the finding of the responsibility to MVD within 10 days. If you find the person not responsible, um, then again, you're going to enter the judgment. And if the person has um, has submitted any deposits, uh, you want to order that the deposits be refunded. And with respect to advising the defendant that uh, they do have the right to appeal, um, I always um, add the statement that an appeal would be based upon a transcript of today's hearing. You don't get a new evidentiary hearing. Mm -hmm. uh, I've had literally thousands of defendants in huff and puff and insist they're going to appeal. Um, and, and I don't recall a single civil traffic hearing case I've ever done get actually appealed. So, uh, you know, I like to 
to, to make that clear because they, they may think that they're going to get a whole other day in court with a different hearing officer and that's not the case. Right, right. Um, I usually don't um, advise them of that just because, you know, we're normally having to go from one case to another to another. Um, our The way that our courtroom is set up is we have our uh, inside bailiff or our recording clerk who is actually taking care of the record. Um, and then we have people go outside to the clerk um, at the window outside the courtroom uh, for their processing of their paperwork. Um, so our bailiff in the outside window, they are usually the ones that advise them about the um, about the you know specifics with regard to the appeal, um, and then we have it actually printed um, on our notice or whatever. We have that printed on the back of our judgment form. Um, so it it gives me less to uh, less to have to talk about with the defendants, and then that way I can just go on to the next case. Um, but it is helpful, and I do if people do ask me. Um, you know, if they're able to present new evidence at a new hearing or something like that, then of course I do explain to them that no, the appeal is not a new hearing. Um, it is simply the court reviewing what this court did and, and what, you know, my ruling was. Um, all right, couple of legal points here. Um, remember that for dismissal of charges, you can only dismiss charges that you have the statutory authority uh, to dismiss. Um, so for no proof of insurance, we do have authority to dismiss charges if people present valid proof of insurance that covers that data violation. Um, for no driver's license in possession, if the person has a valid license, but simply just didn't have it with them, they forgot their purse, forgot their wallet, couldn't find it in the car, whatever the case may be, um, we do have the authority to dismiss that charge. Driving on a suspended license, um, if they provide proof of reinstatement, the statute allows for the court to sua sponte um, dismiss the charge. And then the new one that we got the authority as of last year uh, for no current registration violations, um, if they present proof of subsequent registration of the vehicle, then that charge is to be dismissed. Um, with regard to speed complaints, um, ARS 28707 actually requires that complaints for speed violations specify the alleged speed, the maximum speed applicable, identification, date, time, and location of the incident. So essentially, if the um, complaint is not, um, does not include all of these items, it is not properly uh, completed, and the court then must dismiss that charge. Um, or you can give it back uh, to the, you can send it back to the police department and let them know that the filing of the complaint has been rejected, depending on, you know, the system that your court has. Um, again, this, I, I, is, this is something required by statute, so they do have to list that on the complaint. And I do, have a I do have a question from one of our hearing officers uh, that, uh, for collisions, which get cited as a speeding violation, uh, sometimes some of this information is missing. Okay, so if the person is cited with 28701A, failure to control speed to avoid a collision, in that situation, they do not have to list an alleged speed or a maximum speed because it's not the speed itself that is the uh, basis of the complaint it's the failure to control. So the person could be going one mile an hour and bump into someone in front of them. They are cited with 28701A, 
but it's for failure to control their vehicle as opposed to the fact that they were traveling at a specific speed. The purpose behind this is so that that way the, the person knows what they've been charged with and they can present a defense. So, you know, if they're, if it's being alleged that they were traveling at 20 miles an hour over the posted speed limit, they need to know that that's what the violation is. But if they're being charged with failure to control their speed, then, then they know that that's what they're being charged with is failure to control. So um, for, for 28701A, if it's specifically listed as a failure to control, then they don't have to list the alleged speed and maximum speed. But if it's any other speed violation, they do have to have these, um, these items listed on the complaint. Hopefully that answered the question. All right, um, another one brand new to Arizona um, is the cell phone use law. So ARS 28914, um, which is operating a vehicle while using a wireless communication device. Um, what this law states um, is that it prohibits driving while holding or physically supporting an electronic device. Um, it, actually, it also says you cannot write, read, or send a text or data. Um, so I've had individuals, I've had a lot of these cases. I've had individuals who have told me that they were on their GPS, but they were holding their phone so that they could see it because they can't see it if it's in their cup holder or if it's on their dash. Um, I've had individuals who said, you know, well, I was, I was on speakerphone um, and I had the phone on my lap or I was holding it on my shoulder. Regardless of what they are doing, if they are in any way holding the device or physically supporting it, that is a violation of our law. Our cell phone law is a very, very, very restrictive law. Um, so, and, and again, it also includes the fact if they're reading, writing, or sending a text or data. So I've had individuals who say, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't using my phone. I wasn't texting. I was looking at a text for an address. Well, you're reading. Um, if you're looking at something because you're looking at um, a picture, you're looking at data. So, you know, any of those kinds of things is what are is what are prohibited by our statute. Um, the statute does allow for hands-free operation. Um, it also does not apply if a vehicle is stopped at a red light or stopped at a stop sign. Um, so you can pick up your phone and use them if your vehicle is completely stopped. Um, and there are some emergency exceptions that exist. Um, so I believe DPS um, has a, a handout called uh, Hands Off Arizona, and they kind of created these little, um, not emojis, but these little, uh, you know, uh, graphs or these little depictions of what is allowed and what is not allowed. Um, so hands-free device is allowed. Using a GPS navigation is allowed as long as you're not holding it, okay? It has to be hands-free. Um, and then making emergency 911 calls is allowed. Now for that, because it's an emergency situation, you are allowed to actually hold your phone. You are allowed to talk on your phone. Um, however, otherwise making, an answering, making or answering a call is prohibited. Reading or sending messages is prohibited and holding or supporting the device with your body is prohibited. Okay, so just remember, hands off Arizona. All right, and now we turn it over to Judge Utternetto for marijuana.
And before we do that, I, I do want to open the floor up for questions. Uh, we, we do have a lot of people here, and, and if we were doing this in person, we would be getting a lot of questions. Uh, so um, I, I am going to open it up for questions. I, I, I will ask one to get us going. Uh, okay. For waste of finite resources, the statute does specifically say um, between uh, or up to 10 miles an hour over the limit uh, and not over 10 miles an hour. So what if the officer is cutting someone a break uh, and they have traveled more than 10 miles over uh, over the speed limit and they could be charged with a violation of, of, of uh, uh, speeding or even a criminal violation? Yes, in fact, I just got asked this question yesterday um, by a judge uh, from Surprise Court, I believe. That's and she asked me. Okay. Yeah, she contacted me with the exact same question. Um, you know, the way the law was written, the way the statute was written is it does give um, the option of treating the case as a civil traffic violation or treating it as, you know, this anomaly that they've created called the waste of finite resources where it doesn't result in points, it has a lower fine, and insurance companies cannot use it against you um, with regard to ratings. Um, however, I know that judges are, or not judges, officers are in the habit of trying to cut people a break. Um, and so if that is what the, the officer has decided to do, um, just like when they decide to cite someone with a civil speed as opposed to a criminal speed, even if they were going 25 over, 30 over, 40 over, whatever the case may be, that is the complaint that we are that we are adjudicating. We are adjudicating it the way it was written. Um, our rules specifically say that the court cannot amend a, a charge to a different charge, regardless of whether or not the evidence, you know, comes out differently, um, because we cannot do anything that would substantially affect the rights of the defendant. So if a defendant comes in and they have, you know, asserted their right to dispute a citation, it is not fair for the court to then punish them for the fact that they chose to have a hearing and we are now going to elevate the charge from the way it was charged by the officer. Um, so that is my perspective on it is we honor the way the complaint was written. Um, if it was written as a waste of finite resources, we leave it as a finite waste of finite resources. Um, if it was written as a civil speed, even though, even though it could have been criminal speed, we leave it as a civil speed. Um, there's nothing that's been, you know, written. There's no directive or anything that I've seen with regard to that because the law is so new. Um, that was one that went into effect from last legislative session. Um, so I haven't received or seen any other directive on that. That's just my feeling, um, my opinion on it, is that we should not be holding that against someone or possibly increasing a penalty for them, you know, if the if the intent of the officer was to try and cut them a break. And, and that's what struck me as well, is that um, we would be punishing someone for requesting a hearing because there are, would be lots of people who just go ahead and pay the fine for a waste of finite resources 
Uh, so if you request a hearing and it gets bumped up to a civil, which now gets reported to MVD and your insurance company, you've been severely disadvantaged. Um, so Correct. the question is, did the legislature do that on purpose or do it by accident? Uh, and I actually do have a theory um, of that would explain if they did do it on purpose, where that came from. Uh, but Mr. Ginsburg, did, did you have a question? Yes, I do, Judge. Uh, I ha happened to have a case just yesterday where a trooper pulled over uh, the defendant that cited her for holding a cell phone in her hand. However, the defendant uh, testified that she had her daughter in the uh, passenger seat who had held up the phone and she was trying to tell her to push it away. So the question is, and the daughter was not there to testify. The question is, how, how should we rule on that? That's going to be a credibility issue. Um, you know, if the officer's testimony was that he specifically saw her with the cell phone in her hand, um, and then you've got contradicting testimony from her saying, no, it wasn't in my hand, it was in my daughter's hand, um, then that's where you're gonna have to look at, okay, what was the perspective of the officer? How close was he? Could he see if it was her hand or was it the daughter's hand? Did he just see that there seemed to be something near her face? You know, I mean, those are kind of things that are gonna have to be judged on a case by case basis. Um, I've had ones where, yeah, I've had ones where people say, no, I didn't have a cell phone in my hand. I had, you know, a mirror or I had, you know, I had something else in my hand that the officer thought was um, a cell phone. In those cases, you know, I'm like, well, hey, you know, you thought it was, but you don't know if it was. And they're saying it was something else. I wasn't there. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, the way I ruled on it was that um, I dismissed the fine, but I told the defendant that it was her responsibility that when passengers are in the car, they should know they should not have anything that could interfere with the person's driving. True, true. And sometimes we just have to make those calls and make it an educational experience as well, you know. Thank you. And uh, the last time we had this class in person, which seems forever ago, I did play the Seth Meyers clip of the defendant who was pulled over for uh, using a cell phone and his defense was it was actually a McDonald's hash brown. Uh, and he did spend several thousand dollars um, hiring attorneys and getting it appealed to finally win on that case. Uh, and <laughs> that it was in fact a hash brown. All right, so any other questions, comments about uh, civil traffic hearings? I, I know one of the, the things that, and I did mention earlier, the, the stop sign violation. In, in my experience, um, that is one of the more difficult ones uh, to explain to people if, if you're, or, uh, you know, to explain how you're going to rule uh, because no doubt you, you've got an officer who's testifying that they were watching this vehicle in particular and the vehicle did not come to a full and complete stop uh, and the person is going to testify, well, that you know, this was my daughter's school and my neighborhood and of course I came to a complete stop. 
uh, and, and you are going to have to rule in one person's favor or the other. Uh, Judge Ria, did you want to address that? Yeah, I know when I first got on the bench, that was probably the most difficult charge for me to, um, you know, to to rule on um, because it was one person's word versus another. Um, and, you know, you always had the officer saying they didn't come to a stop. And you always had the person saying, well, yes, I did come to a stop. So how do you rectify that? Um, and so with experience, um, you know, the more that you handle these cases, you know what kind of things to look for. Um, again, you look at where was the where was the officer? What was their point of view? Did they have a clear view of the sign? Um, were they looking at the person's tires or were they looking at the vehicle in its entirety? Um, you know, all of those different things, those little details make a big difference. Um, but like in the situation that you just described, Judge, um, you've got an officer who's describing what he saw versus a defendant saying, well, this is what I usually do. I'm in the habit of usually doing this. Um, they're not saying that I specifically stopped, I looked both ways, and then I proceeded. So it's those kind of little nuances that can make a difference. Um, and those are the kinds of details that you look for in those cases. All right, any other questions? All right, I, I, I'm gonna start warning people that uh, I may recommend to the presiding judge that we stop giving Cojet credit uh, for watching these on YouTube uh, if I continue to have classes with a great number of people who do not ask questions. Uh, this is this is a little frustrating. We've, we've got uh, a great expert here and this is your opportunity to ask questions. So do we have any other questions? All right, uh, do you wanna put the um, PowerPoint back up? Sure, so you want me to continue running it? Yes. Okay. All right, take it away. All right, so now we're gonna talk about civil, uh, civil marijuana hearings. The reason this is in civil traffic is that this is now, um, it, it can be done by civil traffic hearing officers. Uh, so you, you might get these and where you're gonna get these, there's just one slim little category where you're gonna get it. And that's for people 18 to uh, 21. So if they're under 18, that should be going to Superior Court if they're over 21, it's if they're 21 or over, it's not going to be a violation here unless there have been repeat violations. Uh, so the statute is at 362853. For persons under 21 years of age, it is unlawful to possess, consume, transport, or transfer without remuneration, one ounce or less of marijuana. The first violation is a civil penalty of no more than $100 to the Smart and Safe Arizona Fund, and the court has the discretion to order up to four hours of drug education or counseling. Uh, while that is an option, we don't actually do that, so please don't do that. Uh, there are no surcharges or other fees other than the time payment fee, and additional violations are criminal, but um, there must have been an allegation of priors filed by the state. 
so if you just have a, a citation, uh, well, and you're not going to, well, you shouldn't be seeing this in civil traffic uh, because this, this should um, be charged as a criminal. But if you're one of our pro tems and you've got a, a crime charged for someone between 18 and 20, uh, it can't just be based on a citation. There would have to be uh, a, a document filed by the prosecutor's office that would allege priors uh, to elevate that. If it comes up at the civil traffic hearing um, that this uh, person, uh, and we, we're not going to call them juveniles because juveniles are under 18, uh, that this young adult uh, has priors. Uh, if, if you're seeing it as civil traffic, it's, it's a first violation. Uh, so that penalty is no more than $100. Okay, next. The authority for civil marijuana, civil marijuana violations in uh, our limited jurisdiction courts was put into Title 22 at Articles 701 and 702. They may be filed into the Justice and the Municipal Courts with a um, traffic, uh, with an ATTC. Uh, civil traffic hearing officers can now handle them. The civil traffic and voting rules apply unless they're filed with a criminal. Remember, if there's a criminal violation, then the criminal rules do apply. Uh, and an officer can alter the ATTC to indicate that it is a civil violation rather than a civil traffic violation. And defaults can go to collections and they can go to the tax intercept program, uh, but they do not go to MBD um, and MBD does not uh, suspend driver's licenses uh, for unpaid civil fines uh, anyway. Uh, next. All right, so again, this is 18 to 20 year olds. Uh, under 18 will go to juvenile court. Some will occasionally slip through. Uh, you might want to bring it to the attention of the JP. Uh, the next point is in immigration advisory. Uh, for those pro tems who do criminal as well, you, you're aware of the Rule 17.2 immigration advisory. And um, what this says is you may have immigration consequences uh, with this violation. Even though this is a civil violation, keep in mind that marijuana is still a federal uh, prohibited uh, drug and, uh, and, and, and someone who does not have citizenship status, who does admit to a civil violation that may impact their ability to later get residential status or citizenship status. Uh, so in that instance, it is going to be uh, possible that we should be giving the immigration advisory. The Supreme Court was supposed to make rulings on this or recommendations on this, and they still have not. Uh, so what I will say, because that next line does say to all or none, is our best practice on the immigration advisory is if you're going to do it, uh, then you give it to everyone. Uh, you're not going to give it to certain individuals who you think it may apply to either as a practice, you do warn everyone, or as a practice, you do not warn any, everyone. At this point, you don't have to give that warning. Uh, it's just 
um, suggested perhaps you may want to. Okay, next slide. All right, so we do have a separate um, bond sheet for Title 36. We did uh, do a survey of our judges as to what they did want to charge uh, for a civil violation. Uh, and so that uh, that is $65. Uh, and again, we're, we're not gonna do uh, counseling for that. Uh, you're, you're not bound by that. You can, you can assess between zero and 100. And you can, um, uh, again, this doesn't get reported to MBD. All right, and with that, next slide, I'll turn it back to Judge Via. Okay. All right, um, just a couple of legislative changes that we just wanted to make sure that you were aware of because they were new um, and passed uh, in the session last year. Um, so the highlights from 2021, it was a, a pretty busy year for the legislature. We had a lot of things that affected civil traffic. Um, the big one is the fact that we can no longer suspend driver's licenses um, for failure to pay civil traffic violations. Um, so before, you know, that was essentially the teeth that we had to get individuals to pay their uh, obligations um, was with the, you know, the threat or the imposition um, of a suspension of their license. Um, but we are now prohibited from doing that. Um, and in fact, as part of that law, um, MBD was also ordered to reinstate all licenses and driving privileges that had been um, suspended for failure to pay civil traffic fines. Um, so that has uh, changed um, the landscape for civil traffic in, in some ways. Um, there was a lot of people who got their driver's licenses back um, and still owe money to courts. Um, and so now, you know, you just have to go with the financial um, uh, financial means of enforcing um, by either, you know, sending them to collections or like Judge Agarnetto said, you can go through the tax intercept program, um, but we can no longer use MBD uh, as a way to leverage uh, for people to pay their fines. Um, another change was that the community restitution credit um, is uh, now applicable to civil traffic as well as any other fines. If anyone owes a fine to the court, they can uh, be allowed to uh, perform community restitution. Um, and the credit was raised to the state minimum wage rounded up to the next dollar. Um, so currently the rate would be $13 per hour that you credit them uh, for community restitution. Um, commercial vehicle equipment violations, which were formerly criminal charges, um, are now civil traffic violations. Um, however, there is um, a provision in the ordinance, or I'm sorry, not ordinance, in the statute, uh, which does allow for elevated fines. Um, so although they are civil traffic fines, um, certain violations can have fines up to uh, $500 per charge plus surcharges. Um, penalties were raised for repeated failures to yield to emergency vehicles. Um, and then we discussed a little bit about the waste of finite resources. Um, that uh, statute was expanded uh, to be applicable to violations over 30 miles per hour in a non-urban or 40 mile per hour zone in urban areas um, and within 10 miles per hour of the speed limit. And, and I'm gonna uh, interrupt to, to sure. talk about to talk about community restitution. Sure. Uh, community 
distribution is applicable for nearly all of the civil traffic violations. It does not apply to the $20 time payment fee. Uh, and uh, the, the minimum wage did go up in January, but it went up to less than, still less than $13. So it still gets rounded up to $13. That will go up again, probably quite a bit perhaps next January and it'll get rounded up to the next dollar next January. All right, yeah, it makes the math a lot more difficult for us. It was so much easier when it was $10 an hour. <laughs> All right, um, and then we've actually only had one uh, piece of legislation that's been passed so far um, in, the, in the 2022 session. Um, now, of course, the legislature is still in session right now. They have not concluded their session. Um, so legislation which has been passed and signed by the governor um, does not go into effect uh, until 90 days after the legislative session has ended, um, unless that legislation is signed with an emergency clause. Um, so, so far, the only one that specifically is in relation to civil traffic um, is with regard to operation of motorcycles. Um, this now allows motorcycle operators to overtake and pass a stopped vehicle facing the same direction in the same lane. So previously they were required to operate in their own lane. Um, they can now share a lane in order to overtake and pass a stopped vehicle. Also, it allows for operation of a motorcycle between two lanes in the same direction of travel um, if the motorcycle is being operated safely and not at a speed greater than 15 miles per hour. Um, this is what they refer to as splitting the lane um, so essentially when vehicles are stopped in traffic, the motorcycle can just go right in between those lanes. Um, so again, this is not, um, it's not in effect yet. Uh, it was not passed with an emergency clause, so it will not go into effect until the uh, 90, day, um, 90 days after this legislative session actually ends. All right. And, yeah, I've seen motorcycles violate, or doing this already so there are some who yeah. either thought that it was in place or don't care well and the the big advocacy for that was from the motorcycle motorcycle riders community um apparently they're saying that it's safer for motorcycles to operate in that manner i don't know how but um that's that's the justification that they've used and that was the justification that they used in california um, California, this has actually been legal for years uh, for motorcycles to, to split lanes and to operate in the lane. Um, so I, I haven't seen the studies, but apparently that's what they use as their basis to get these laws passed. Okay, and uh, uh, back to civil traffic, we do have some questions that were put in the chat box. First oh, was okay. a comment uh, that um, there was no reason to ask questions because the materials are so good. So thank you. Uh, but well, then we do, have a, we do have a couple of questions. May a hearing officer determine that a reasonable and prudent speed was the speed an officer admitted driving, uh, not under emergency circumstances, immediately before stopping a defendant driving at about that speed. So basically the defendant was going with the flow of traffic as was the officer. Okay. 
So can the hearing officer determine that that was the reasonable and prudent speed? Yeah, I mean, you can if that was the speed of the flow of traffic and you find that it's reasonable based on um, the, the circumstances. Now, of course, we always start with what the posted speed limit is because that is the speed limit that's been determined by the traffic studies for that area. Um, but, you know, I mean, you're allowed to deviate slightly from that. Um, so if traffic is traveling, you know, five miles an hour above what the posted speed limit is, or even maybe 10 above, that could be considered to be what the reasonable and prudent speed was. Um, and then if the person was going above and beyond that, you can still find them responsible and then calculate the fine, you know, based on what you believe the reasonable speed was for that area. Um, it, it can also work in the reverse as well. Uh, for example, if we have a situation where there's heavy rain um, or a dust storm, the reasonable and prudent speed may be actually less than what the posted speed limit is because of the environmental factors at that point. Um, so yes, a, a hearing officer can definitely make that determination based on the evidence presented. And we have another question. What do you recommend for people who claim that they increased their speed because they thought someone was chasing or tailgating them only to later discover that the vehicle behind them was a law enforcement officer? Okay, and I've, I've actually had that uh, defense raised several times because uh, Phoenix Police does uh, have several unmarked vehicles um, that they call their aggressive driver cars. And so that's the, the purpose of them actually having those unmarked vehicles is to capture, um, you know, vehicles or drivers um, who, who aren't aware that that's a police officer that's behind them or that they're passing. Um, so what I always tell individuals is, you know, the fact that someone is following you closely um, if they have the ability to switch lanes, then let them switch lanes or you switch lanes to get away from that person. It does not make sense for you to put yourself and others in danger by increasing your speed as opposed to just allowing that person to go around you. That's what I usually explain to individuals in that situation. Um, and normally when you say it that way, it's like, you know, well, would you honestly put yourself into more danger by speeding and then possibly running a red light or not being able to stop if someone else comes in front of you because you're trying to evade this other person that's behind you? Um, that's what I usually explain to people. I'll be honest, it doesn't always work because they feel they're right um, and they feel they were justified in that situation, but I haven't been reversed on it. so. <laughs> That's what I would suggest. <laughs> now, I have uh, just that that brings up one other point, though. I have had some situations where people have continued to drive because they didn't feel safe in pulling over. You know, maybe it was a dark area or something like that. Um, and, you know, the officers don't tend to like when people don't pull over right away. Um, but if someone says that that was the reason that they did that, I, I, you know, I'm like, I understand if you wanted to find somewhere safe to pull over, that's fine. You wanted to go to somewhere that was a lighted area, that's fine. Um, you know, so I, I understand it from both perspectives. I mean, I basically try to put myself in the in the in the situation of being the reasonable person. You know, would a reasonable person feel safe pulling over? where there's no light in a dark area or whatever probably not so if they drove for a little bit longer even though it made the officer upset that's understandable 
Any other questions? I know there were some questions that we got um, emailed to us, Judge Otterneto. Do you have those well, or the, the scenario there? Yeah, I've gone through the ones that, that we should address here. The others are commercial okay. and oh, well, okay. there, there, there is a question about um, what if an officer is questioned as to um, a signage, whether signage meets MBD requirements. Okay. Um, so the manual that we are to look to with regard to signage is the uniform manual on traffic control devices. Um, you can find that online. Um, it's available. You know, you can, you don't have to order the huge volume unless you want to have one for your court. Um, uh, but I always just look up the manual online. Um, and there is an Arizona supplement to it, um, showing what signs are approved for the state of Arizona. Um, you can also look it up on the um, Arizona Department of Transportation website. Um, they have examples of what signs, you know, are appropriate and what signs aren't. Um, I've, I've had to address that sometimes where I've had, you know, individuals bring up uh, issues with regards to, regard to the signage. Um, and sometimes signs are not posted correctly. Um, and so it's a good resource to, to do, to look at if you have a question as to whether or not the signage was appropriate. So well, again, the question it, is what is the officer expected to have knowledge of? So the officer is expected to have knowledge uh, or well, the officer is expected to present us with the testimony as to why they issued the citation. We don't expect the officers to be experts in making the determination whether signage is appropriate or not. That's for us to determine. So what the officer should be doing is telling us what was present there. You know, what kind of sign was present? Were the signs posted? Were they in a clear, you know, were they were they clearly distinguishable? Um, that's what we want. The officers are supposed to give us information. They're not supposed to give us an opinion. All right, so in your materials, we do have a couple of scenarios and we'll go through those now. Uh, so the first one is Mindy defendant and the charge is failure to obey a traffic control device. The charge claims that the driver made a right turn at an intersection where there was a no right turn sign posted. At the arraignment, the defendant appeared and advised the judge that she does not speak English. Defendant had a friend in the back Room who advised the judge that the driver is from Chuck and speaks Chuckese, and that is real. The friend offered to interpret, and the judge agreed. When asked to interpret what defendant stated, the friend explained the defendant should not be responsible for the violation because she had just arrived in the United States and was not familiar with science and traffic laws. The judge entered a plea of not responsible and scheduled a civil traffic hearing. The court scheduled a Chucky's interpreter for the civil traffic hearing. At the hearing, the officer testifies that he saw a driver driving northbound on Appian Way approaching Upstart Lane. There was an official no right turn sign on the southwest corner of the intersection. The officer saw a defendant make a right turn at the intersection. Defendant testifies that she was lost when she was driving on Appian Way. She didn't see the no right turn sign because she was looking at her cell phone for directions. When she realized she was approaching upstart lane, she looked up, but the no right turn sign was out of her line of sight. She made a right turn and was stopped by the officer. Defendant testifies that she feels the officer should have given her a warning instead of a citation. 
All right, so our first question, and you can put your answer in the text box, uh, but in this scenario, should the judge have permitted defendant's friend to act as an interpreter? Do you see any problems that can arise if a friend acts as an interpreter? And how do you proceed when a non-English speaker appears? All right, anyone can pop in or put an answer in the chat box. Anyone can pop in or put an answer in the chat uh, in the chat box. All right, Mr. Bell. Yeah, I I would say that uh, you know after listening to the officer and everything else that uh, you know you take the best best guess as far as interpreters. You know, if you don't understand the language, you really don't know what they're you know talking about. I, that would be a tough one, but uh, I would have a tendency to to lean towards the officer, uh, you know, I understand you're, you know, in a new city or whatever, and, uh, but, you know, especially like a right turn sign, uh, no right turn, I think that's pretty much universal. So hey, we're, we're just answering the I, first I would probably, question. I would go on the side of the officer. We're, we're just answering the first question. Which was the interpreter. Right. Which was the inter interpreter, right? Okay, I right, I don't like that that type of thing. I would I would actually get on the line, the uh, language line, and uh, something of that sort, you know, to clarify it. I I wouldn't just accept that. Good. All right, Mr. Ginsburg. I don't think the, we have we cannot listen to that interpreter because the, we don't know if she is court certified. It has to be a court certified uh, interpreter. So I don't think that person has any, is not relevant to the case at all. And I would not accept it. That answer. All right, Judge. Okay. Well, um, there, there's a little bit of a distinction between whether the person is appearing for arraignment or initial appearance, um, or if it's a hearing. Um, so obviously for the hearing, you do have to have um, a Arizona court certified interpreter um, that is interpreting for the hearing. Um, but for arraignment, um, you can use your best, you know, best available resources. So um, as, as uh, the one judge suggested, you know, if you have the ability to contact the language line um, to get an interpreter to get through the arraignment, um, then I would advise to do that. Um, but if you don't have that ability, like Judge uh, Otterneto said, there was, you know, the one time that he had to find a Chuck E's interpreter even language line did not have anyone available. Since it's the arraignment, um, you know, you can set the case for a hearing. Um, there's no harm, no foul. You know, if she's saying, no, that's not what I wanted. I didn't want to have a hearing. She can explain that at the hearing where there's an interpreter there available, a certified interpreter. Um, so, you know, at the arraignment, uh, it, it, I've had the experience where we've had, you know, friends or family members come in um, and, and just say, yes, they want to have a hearing. Um, or they want to go to driving class or they want to pay the fine or whatever the case may be. At arraignment, it's okay. Uh, but definitely for the hearing, you need a certified interpreter. 
All right, so two, what elements does the state need to establish for a charge of failure to obey a traffic control device? And so you do uh, need to look at the statute to answer that. Um, three, is the defendant's testimony regarding why she didn't see the sign a defense if the sign was properly posted? And what if there, what if we do know that branches were hanging down in front of the sign because the defendant does have a picture of that? Does that constitute a defense? So one of our judges says that is not a sufficient defense. Anyone else? All right, Judge Villa. Um, so yes, yeah, so obviously you're going to look at you know the elements for the particular charge. Um, the fact that the person didn't see the sign is not is not going to be a valid defense as long as the sign was properly posted. Um, however, if the sign was obstructed, um, and by that meaning it has to be you know a very um, substantial obstruction, um, then that can be a valid defense. Um, if it was just a few tree branches and you could still basically make out the sign, um, then I would say no, you know, if enough of it is visible and you can tell what the sign is, then it's fine. But if you have almost, you know, the entirety of the tree blocking that sign and you can't really see it, then that would be a valid defense. Okay. All right, so um, I would hope everyone would agree that number four is not a defense. And number five uh, is $250 plus surcharges. All right, number six. Should she have been cited for using her cell phone? And what are your options as a hearing officer? We did have one person say, most likely too late. Not sure what that means. So is that a violation of our hands-free um, statute so in my opinion it would be a violation of the hands-free statute if the officer saw it um, but if it's just her testimony that she was on her cell phone and that's why she didn't see the sign at that point i think that's what they're referring to what judge kilski is saying there um, at that point it's too late for the officer to cite her for it if he didn't actually see it All right, and uh, so you're not going to cite that person or charge that person with a, an offense that's not in the citation. All right, Correct. and so Judge Kielski, you indicated you had other questions or concerns. Uh, what you want to pop in and tell us what those are? I mean, it, it, the whole thing—the whole thing seemed rather um, haphazard. Um, with a, you know, again, the whole issue with a family member uh, coming in to uh, be the interpreter, um, and um, uh, and and I, I had some concerns about whether the interpretation was was honest and clear, or whether the interpretation was more of a representation. Okay, so more of a concern yeah. there at the moment. And, and that is a very, very valid concern. I think that was what part of the question said was, would you have concerns as a hearing officer? 
Um, I, I do have quite, you know, concerns about that when we have um, family members who want to come in and they're wanting to take control of the proceeding and they want to talk for the person. Um, if the person is able to speak for themselves, I usually ask the family members to have a seat and let me just talk to the person on their own. Um, and if they just seem like they're just going to be too much, too intrusive and they're trying to, to dictate the proceedings, um, I'll even tell them that they have to sit, you know, in the public area. They can't sit next to the person um, because they're being disruptive. Um, but again, you know, if you have a situation where you're at arraignment, and I'm not sure if you guys do arraignments in person, we, we're no longer doing arraignments in person on civil traffic. Um, so, but in the situation where you have someone who's come in and they didn't inform the court that they needed an interpreter, we don't have an interpreter available. The language line isn't available. We've got nothing else. Um, you know, if if they're saying they want to have a hearing because they want to, you know, um, dispute the charge, you can set the case for a hearing, have the interpreter there at that point. Um, I would usually notate in the file interpreter was not available so that that way at the hearing, the hearing officer will let them know that now that they have an interpreter, did they want to dispute the charge? or did they want to go to driving school or did they want to pay the fine? We'll make sure that their options are, are known to them at that point when they have an interpreter there. Or keep it if you want to, you can continue the arraignment and order an interpreter for the arraignment. Well, keep in mind though, that also that setting it for a hearing is also uh, a, uh, one of the least harmful things you can do because at the hearing, they can, they can plead responsible. Uh, they don't have to proceed with the hearing. The only way they've possibly been prejudiced is if they wanted to go to defensive driving school. And so at the hearing with a proper interpreter, you could ask, did, did you want to contest this charge? Did you want the option to go to defensive driving school and allow them to go to defensive driving school? All right, let's do scenario number two with Don defendant, and that is failure to control your speed to avoid a collision. The charge claims that the defendant collided with the rear of a stopped vehicle while driving on Adams Street. At the arraignment, the defendant appeared and pled not responsible because he didn't cause the accident. The court scheduled a civil traffic hearing. The first question, what should the hearing officer do if the defendant is the only person who appears for the civil traffic hearing? So that is covered right by the rules. I would hope um, everyone would agree that if no one appears for the state, that this does get dismissed. Uh, but then what should the hearing officer do if the defendant and the driver of the other vehicle appear, but the officer does not appear? Can the hearing proceed if the officer does not appear, but the other state's witnesses do appear? All right, we're going to consider this the yes. Charles Edernet scenario, uh, because this did happen. Uh, I was the victim in a collision I was cited as a witness to appear in Phoenix Municipal Court. I did anticipate what if the officer does not appear. So I had a copy of the police report and I was ready to argue with the hearing officer that I could proceed as the state's witness in case um, the officer did not appear. Judge Bia? Yes, absolutely. Remember, the officer is a witness uh, for the state as well. So if you have another state's witness that can proceed with the case, you can go ahead and proceed with the hearing. 
Um, there's nothing that requires that the officer be there if there is another state witness. The officer does appear for the civil traffic hearing, and in my instance, the officer did appear and testifies that when he arrived at the scene of the collision, defendant's vehicle was directly behind the other vehicle. The front end of defendant's vehicle was damaged and the rear of the other vehicle was damaged. The driver of the other vehicle testifies that while she was driving on Adams Street, a candidate posting political signs stepped in front of her. She was able to stop her vehicle without hitting the candidate, but within seconds of stopping her vehicle, she felt defendant's vehicle hit the rear of her vehicle. Defendant testifies that he doesn't feel he was at fault because no one should have anticipated that a candidate would step into the street, so he should be found not responsible. So how should the hearing officer rule on this case? And no, you cannot rule that the uh, other driver should have hit the, uh, should have hit the candidate. <laughs> no, um, we don't condone that. <laughs> failure to control your speed, avoid a collision. Was there a collision? Yes. I, so my thought you... would be, I said my thought would be the, uh, the fact that you know you're supposed to have your car under control at all times so you're either following too close you're maybe going too fast uh i think it's open and shut and, you know all right mr kielski no i i would agree that the the second vehicle should have been able to control their speed to avoid an unanticipated and an unexpected stop of a vehicle in front of them, and so that meets the definition of the statute. So the uh, the second vehicle colliding with the vehicle stopping to avoid the pedestrian um, is responsible. Can you be charged with a violation of the statute for hitting a dog? Can you be charged with 28701A violation for hitting a dog? Yes. Is that the question? Okay. In theory, you, you can be charged with anything. <laughs> is, is it going to stand up? Depends on the details right. that come out at the hearing. Judge Villa? Will you okay. be found well, responsible? <laughs> the, the statute says that. Um, driver fails to control the speed of their uh, vehicle to avoid colliding with any object person or vehicle on entering or adjacent to the roadway. So I guess the question is legally, does the dog count as an object? Because it's not a person and it's not a vehicle. Um, so, you know, legally, would you count the dog as an object? And if so, um, you know, then you would have to look at the circumstances. Did the dog suddenly run into the roadway? or was the dog in the roadway um that it's that's a tough one actually <laughs> well and i did have i had an officer who cited someone for hitting a dog at two in the morning and that the defendant was a taxi driver the defendant actually stopped collected the dog and took the dog to an emergency vet and the officer cited him for failure to control his speed to avoid a collision. Uh, oh, wow. I did find, I found that defendant not responsible, uh, saying that he, he couldn't have anticipated that the dog was going to leap in front of the car. 
And the officer left the courtroom very angry. All right, wow. so back to our scenario. If the hearing officer finds the defendant responsible, can he be required to pay restitution to repair the other vehicle? This one should be easy. Yeah. No. There you go. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, Judge Kilski. <laughs> All right. All right. And we also have Don Callender saying no in the chat as well. So, yes, remember that, is, that although these although these are civil traffic violations, it is not uh, these are not civil cases. We cannot order any restitution. All right. Any last questions for Judge Bia? Or for Judge Adonetto? All right. Have a good weekend, everybody. Thank you, Judge Pia. All right. Thank you, everybody. Have a good weekend. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Jeff. You're welcome. Thank you.